This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 242, Brad and Melissa McQueen. Tragedy and Triumph in Mountain Climbing. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Hey, I want to say a special greeting to all of our new listeners. Our downloads have been growing like crazy, which is very exciting for us. Thank you to the existing listeners who have been sharing the word. We really appreciate it. And new listeners, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast community. We're so glad that you're here. So I have a couple of announcements before we dive into the main show today. The first is about the show. We recorded this show all the way back on January the 5th, so the beginning of January, and that really only matters because we reference the calendar later in the show, and it'll make more sense if you know that we're talking about just a couple of weeks, so you'll know what that means later when you hear it. Also, as a free service to the Adventure Sports community, We like to make announcements for people about events and programs that are going on that benefit us all. We recently received a press release from Granite Gear. I want to share what this is all about. It says here, taking a major dose of inspiration from the Pack It Out team, Granite Gear has committed to supporting others who will pack out trash on the trails around the country through their newly launched Groundskeepers team. The team is compiled of 15 individuals who have committed to thru-hiking various long trails in 2017, including the Pacific Crest Trail, the Appalachian Trail, and others. They say here, We're incredibly proud of what the Packing It Out team accomplished in just two years, over 1,700 pounds of trash packed out. Very cool. With the Grounds Keepers program, we'd like to see even more trails cleaned up and even more hikers inspired to leave the trails better. For more information, you can follow the Groundskeepers by going to instagram.com forward slash the Groundkeepers. And for more information, please contact Shelly Smith. That is Shelly at DarbyCommunications.com. Thanks, Granite Gear. We appreciate the information. Love the program. I love the idea of getting these trails cleaned up and keeping them that way. So thank you very much for sharing that with us. And now we're going to dive into the main part of today's show. Today I have Mountaineers Brad and Melissa McQueen with us. And they have a lot of amazing stories, I'm sure, about climbing, whether it's Colorado 14ers or even Kilimanjaro. But they have one story in particular that was so unique that they wrote a book about it. And so we're going to visit about that today. Brad and Melissa both live in Colorado. They enjoy rock climbing. Melissa is active with Big City Mountaineers. And Brad and Melissa are active with Colorado 14ers Initiative. And Brad is the board chair for Volunteers for Outdoor Colorado. So thank you very much for being on the program. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. Well, I'm excited to hear your story. You know, mountaineering is such a delightful hobby and sport, and it can become a lifestyle. And we love interviewing mountaineers on our program, but sometimes not everything goes right. And we'll get to this in more detail later in the show, but you wrote your book, Exposed, Tragedy and Triumph in Mountain Climbing, about a mishap on Mount Evans a few years ago. Right. Yeah. Uh up on 16 years ago now. Wow, 16 years ago. So let's go a little bit into some of the details about your backstory first. And I want to dive into that story. But Brad, you just said that as of today, you're at 311 summits. And are all of those 14ers? Yeah, that's all all Colorado 14er summits. So depending on how you count, you know, that's 54, 55, 56 unique summits, and then you've climbed them over and over and over again. It sounds like this must be a passion for you. Absolutely. Anytime I'm not working or spending time with, with Melissa and the kids, you can probably bet that I'm up on up on one of our 14,000-foot peaks. <laughs> That's great. And Melissa, you have a, a handful of peaks yourself. You say you're up to 16. 
You don't yeah. climb quite as frequently as Brad, but it looks like you're enjoying it as well. Yeah, for sure. I don't I don't make it out quite as much as Brad, and I'm uh, definitely more of a fair-weather hiker at this point um, versus the snow, but I definitely love being outside and get out there as much as I can. Well, that's a lot of fun. So, Brad, why? let's rewind a little bit. Instead of why, just tell us how you fell in love with climbing 14ers. Yeah, you bet, Kurt. So my father and I uh, actually uh, both both got a, uh, a a strain of viral pink eye uh, back in 1998 and got quarantined. The doctor told us we really needed to, to isolate ourselves from the rest of society. And so we thought, well, let's drive up to the mountains together and let's just go hiking. So we uh, pulled out just a regular old hiking book. And I found a hike that was rated at difficult, and it said if you kind of kept going past the end of the hike that you could you could climb one of Colorado's 14ers. So we thought we would go ahead and give that a shot. Uh, it about killed us that day. It was a really, really long day, and we thought we had probably climbed one of Colorado's hardest peaks. Uh, we did a, a mountain called Mount Belford. Uh, we were crushed when I went out and got a 14ers book right after that, and Jerry Roach describes Belford as a gentle classic that requires little more than a sturdy pair of legs. Uh, so, so after doing that one as our first one, we thought we would go try a few more, and we got hooked. <laughs> so I've never heard pink eye blamed before. That's really good. Yeah, it was a nasty thing. <laughs> well, that's awesome. So Belford was your first one. It was, yeah. What caused you to go back and do them over and over? You said it was really tough, your first one. So why go back and do it again? Yeah, really, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm a very checklist-oriented person. I'm an accountant by trade, and I, I, I love a good checklist. Uh, so I, I kind of gradually started working on the list and, and trying to climb all of them as I could. Uh, once I got done doing all the 14ers, we started to expand outside of the state a bit. Uh, Melissa and I decided we wanted to go try Mount Rainier. And so the 14ers kind of became became a little bit of a training ground for me for other adventures. Uh, so I, I started going back to Kelso Ridge on Torrey's Peak uh, as my, my go-to my go-to uh, get-in-shape hike and training hike, and I've now now done that in all 12 months of the year. So the the grid, if you will, on Kelso Ridge, and I think I'm up to 58 times up up that particular route. So so that's the one that I've done the most. Uh, and it was really just that it was close to Denver and convenient and got me up high on a regular basis. Uh, I've kind of started this new project now that I'm calling the seasonal grid, where I'm trying to climb uh, each of the peaks. And I use the, the list of 58 14ers, uh, the, each of the 58 uh, peaks in each of the four calendar seasons. So I'm at 127 of the 232 seasonal grid spots on that goal right now. And uh, so that's that's given me kind of something something else fun to work towards and keeps it new and interesting. And when you go back to the peaks in different seasons and different conditions, uh, they look very, very different than than uh, other seasons and, and conditions. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. You know, it sounds like you're the list man. Uh, recently, <laughs> I started looking into prominence of peaks and not yeah. in not in the matter of whether it's a, a 14 or not you know there's that whole debate about the 54 versus 58 but yep when you look at the most prominent peaks in america you get a whole new list or the most prominent right. peaks in the 50 states or the most prominent peaks in any state and i thought how cool is that for people that like to check off a list boy there are a lot of different ways to go about that and when a peak has prominence then you know you've really climbed something yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of our some of our biggest peaks, uh, prominence-wise, you know, aren't that difficult. But Pikes Peak jumps way up there. Culebra is way up there. Uh, but but on overall prominence, you know, Denali, Mount Rainier, those things are just tower above anything we have in Colorado. Yeah, it's funny. Actually, we're just the second most prominent peak in Colorado is um, not even a 13er. It's a 12er. So <laughs> yeah, Mount Sopras. Yeah, Mount Sopras. I was going to say, isn't that Sopras? <laughs> I just yep. looked it up and I'd already forgotten. So thanks for filling in that gap for me. That's cool. So that's a lot of fun for me, though, to think about prominence, because what we're really talking about is vertical feet that you have to climb. Right. 
And it also means the way that it looks in comparison to the surrounding mountains. So peaks with a lot of prominence, I mean, they're really there, you know, to answer the old question, why do you climb the mountain? Because it's there. Prominent peaks are really there when you look at them. Absolutely. They just scream out at you and, and just the, the, the sheer size of them is, is mind boggling. So Brad, you're trying to climb the peaks in all four seasons and that's a, that's a new goal. Do you know how many people have done this? I don't know of anybody who's actually finished it. There's there's one guy that's trying to do the full monthly grid on all the peaks, a guy named Ken Nolan, and he's uh, he's getting up there in years. And from what I've heard, he may not have enough time to ever finish, uh, but he very well might have done the seasonal grid if he uh, if he sliced and diced his data in a different way. Uh, but there's only about nine people that we know of that have, have done the full list of, of winter peaks. So, so of, of any possibilities, it would be 10 or less people. Uh, but this is just kind of a, this is probably a 15 year goal. Uh, who knows if I'll ever finish it. I'll only, I'll only go do these things in the winter to the extent that they're safe. Uh, and some, some of these peaks would be downright nasty in winter. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see if it ever happens, but it's kind of a fun goal for me to shoot for along the way. Well, it sounds like a, a really cool uh, goal to have and something to motivate you to get out there, to stay healthy, and to experience life in, in a bigger way. And that's what the Adventure Sports Podcast is all about. Whatever the, the passion is, if it, if it helps people to get out there and connect with nature, then we think it's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very cool. So some people might argue that when conditions are right, 14ers can be easier, some, in the wintertime. Not all, for sure. What would you say about that? You, you know, I mean, when conditions are right, uh, certainly some peaks some peaks aren't, aren't too terribly much more difficult in the winter. What, what you do have, you have colder temperatures. We tend to have more wind in the winter. So that, you know, that really, uh, really gets, gets under some people's skin. Uh, but there are definitely peaks that are very safe in the winter. You know, last week I, I went up Quandary Peak, uh, and I did Quandary's East Ridge, uh, which which starts from the same trailhead as the summer trailhead. Uh, has very very little avalanche danger, which is is something where if if you look at the avalanche website today, the whole state is blinking red. Um, uh, you know, so so Quandary really isn't too terribly difficult in in the winter, but yet I went on uh, on Monday, January second, a day that was for all practical purposes, a national holiday, uh, you know, most people were off work that day and we saw three people. So uh, I do think cold temperatures, uh, wind, snow, that keeps a lot of people, a lot of people away. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's probably some, some good safety reasons for, for that as well. You know, I really like to interview husbands and wives together because it's fun to get the perspective. So Melissa, yeah. what do you think these lists and these 14er climbs have done for Brad? Um, well, Brad's a pretty driven, focused guy. Um, it was funny because one of the first things that happened when he finished climbing the 14ers the first time through was everybody started immediately asking him, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? And, um, you know, after our accident, I had people say to me, I can't believe you're still letting Brad go out and climb. And it was kind of like, this isn't about letting Brad go out and climb. This is a part of who he is. And, um, you know, getting out there and having something to work toward is what makes him happier and therefore a better husband and uh, father. Speaking of father, Brad, your kids, do they climb with you? So, uh, my my son has done two 14ers with me, uh, both under his own power. He would get get full credit for those. My daughter has has been on top of one, uh, but it would have an asterisk because I I carried her to the top on my shoulders from probably thirteen thousand feet on uh, when she when she kind of decided that she didn't want to do that anymore that day. Well, how old was she at the time? <laughs> she, she was five. five? Yeah. yeah sure. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, we had spent all summer training and had no intention of taking her, just taking our son who was older and some other kids who were older who had trained, but she had been the strongest through the training of all the older kids, including, and had summited the 13 or snicked out under her own power before and, uh, and was definitely the strongest of all the kids. So we felt we needed to give her a shot 
Plus, uh, we knew Brad was strong enough to carry her if she wasn't. <laughs> well, congratulations to her. I think that counts when you're five years old. That's got to count. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So your kids are now 12 and 9, and it sounds yeah. like they are active as well. You'd mentioned that your son has taken up a competitive rock climbing. Yeah. So uh, actually, just a year ago, um, when we were off for Christmas vacation together, we decided to go check out an indoor rock climbing gym to get out one day and uh, ended up over at Movement Climbing and Fitness here in Denver. And our son just immediately took to it like a fish to water and uh, pretty quickly was on the club and then on the prep team. And within a year now, he uh, has competed at regionals for bouldering and is now moving on to divisionals for bouldering and uh, is on the advanced team. So he's really taken to it, and it's nice. He's gotten Brad outside climbing a few times when the weather was better. And uh, it's the only scary thing is at 12, he's kind of told us one of his life goals is to get a van to live in so he can just move about the country and rock climb. <laughs> so he wants to be the classic dirtbag climber then. Exactly. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's great. You know, climbing was not always as beneficial, I think, as, as it can be now because there weren't enough climbing gyms. There were not organized competitions, all of those things that make it so wonderful for kids these days. And more power to him for going for it. It's such a positive thing. Yeah, I'll say this. I mean, it's been neat to see him so passionate about something and especially something that's keeping him really healthy and active. But um, I can tell you as a longtime teacher, that the side benefits we've seen in him have been tremendous. He's doing much better at school because he's loving this rock climbing so much. And so, you know, he's just more motivated with sort of everything right now. It's been great. They've also, uh, both of our kids are actually really active in parkour also, which um, they've been doing for a few years and has really helped them a ton also. Okay, so I got to ask you about um, parkour. The reason... The reason is because I, I used to, before parkour was a thing, I used yeah. to do parkour stuff in the woods, in nature, whether it was trees yeah. or boulders or rocks or whatever. That's what we did, right? Yeah. Does your son do parkour in the woods? He does parkour every place he is. It's actually, we've when they first started, we had to have numerous conversations about where it was and wasn't appropriate to do parkour because <laughs> outdoors, in the woods, things like that, perfect, exactly. Um, in somebody else's home and they're trying to climb the door frame or, you know, use their fingers to balance going across a door frame. <laughs> that, that we're trying to discourage. <laughs> That's great. Well, I'm sure that the parkour is helping him enormously with the rock climbing. It really has. It's very complimentary skill set. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with a proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new Flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small.
So we have done shows on parkour in the past. And so for people that want to learn more about it, you can look that up. If you go to the adventuresportspodcast.com and you click on the, um, the show categories link, then you can do a control F for find and any subject you want will pop right up. Look for parkour, but you can find all of our episodes there categorized by sport type. So it's easy to find the stuff you enjoy and hopefully easy to find the stuff you're curious about too. So anyway, we can get back to that another time, but I just think that's fantastic. So Brad, why would you encourage people to climb 14ers? You know, I think there's the there's the obvious component of just physical fitness and being being active and healthy. Uh, I think they're also great for you know just getting outside and connecting with nature and appreciating what a beautiful backyard we have and that we need to take care of that backyard. Uh, and then lastly, I think there's there's just a big element of of setting setting goals in life, you know, and and recognizing that if you want to achieve a big goal, you have to work at it one step at a time, and that's the way we, we climb mountains we climb mountains one step at a time and and if we keep doing that over and over you're eventually going to get to the summit and be rewarded with a wonderful feeling of accomplishment and a fantastic view yeah that's well said well said well now that we kind of have the backstory let's dive into the big story that became the book so brad how many 14ers had you climbed at the time of this accident I think I had 15 under my belt when the accident happened. And Melissa, what about you? I believe this was going to be number, I think I had done three and this was going to be number four for me. Number four. So enough experience to kind of have a feel for it. We certainly thought so. (laughs) But still things can surprise us, right? Yeah. Well, let's just dive into it. What is this story? Uh, I'll go on this one. So it was uh, May 20th of 2001. Brad and I had just been married a year and, um, you know, he had kind of introduced me to climbing 14ers. And so in the little time we had been together, we had done, you know, these three together and we were going into the summer of 2001 and really looking forward to spending our first real full summer together working on 14ers. And Brad's dad was still climbing with us at the time. And uh, so we really saw this, you know, it was uh, Memorial Day weekend. We were going to run up Evans and um, just get a quick loop in to get us started towards our summer of climbing 14ers. Um, Things uh, got a little off track. We started bright and early. It was a gorgeous sunny day, um, but we got lost going up and um, ended up going up the wrong mountain. Brad can add in, it's escaping me. Yeah, we had actually moved moved the climb by a day because we had seen the weather forecast and seen that a storm was supposed to be coming in. So we actually moved moved our climb up a day uh, so that we weren't weren't going to be out in the forecasted storm. So we we were paying attention to the weather. Uh, but yeah, I I, I took us up. Uh, Mount Spaulding. We, we had intended to climb Mount Evans from Guanella Pass via the West Ridge route. Uh, and I took us up Mount Spaulding, which is a Centennial 13er uh, that we didn't need to climb. And somehow I got disoriented on the top of Mount Spaulding and and confused uh, confused the ridge that we were supposed to take. And so I took us all the way all the way down Spaulding's East Ridge uh, down to Summit Lake. Um, instead of going across and over to over to the west ridge of Evans, uh, so by the time we realized that we had uh, had gone up and over a mountain we didn't need to climb, we were kind of on the wrong side of of Evans and Beerstadt, and and needed to get back to our car. Melissa said it was Memorial Day weekend. It was actually uh, still shy of Memorial Day weekend, and the Mount Evans Road wasn't open quite yet, so there were no cars on the road, and and really uh, no way for us to to get back over to our car at Guanella Pass, uh, other than to either hike up and over Evans uh, or go back and over Mount Spaulding, where we had come from, um, or, you know, or, or calling for help at that point in time. Melissa recalls uh, when she realized that, uh, that we were in the wrong spot, uh, she recalls seeing 
on a, an emergency phone and wondering if we should call. But it was only 11 o'clock in the morning. It was sky was still bright and blue, and and we thought we still had plenty of time. Um, so we made the decision to go ahead and and hike up and over Evans, uh, our planned planned mountain climb that day. Uh, but we decided to walk up the road instead of 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 going up the steeper way, uh, thinking the road would be a little bit easier on us and easier on our 80 pound golden retriever that was with us that day as well. And I'll throw in that. Uh... 16 years ago, we weren't carrying cell phones, and they didn't really get much reception up in the mountains, so that that call box was sort of our one opportunity. But uh, we did fine. It was long, but, you know, we got to the summit, but it was well afternoon by that point, which kind of breaks one of the golden rules of mountaineering. And uh, when we got to the summit, unfortunately, once we were able to see the other side of the mountain, we could see that that giant storm they had predicted was barreling down on us. Hmm. So uh, from the summit of Evans, we thankfully could see the correct way down and back to our car. So we started hightailing down as fast as we could, given the fact that we were exhausted, which breaks sort of another rule of mountaineering that you should climb a mountain in thirds, a third of your energy to summit, a third to descend, and then a third in reserve for emergency. Well, we were well over probably two-thirds into our energy at that point, but started down. Unfortunately, it's a giant boulder field at the top, and our sweet dog was having a really hard time navigating the boulders, so the guys ended up having to kind of set up a little system to carry her from some of the boulders to the other boulders, which really slowed us down. Um, By the time we got out of the boulder field and onto the snow slope, um, the storm had started to move in, and it had started to snow, but We could still see the trail and felt pretty good that we'd make it down. Um, Unfortunately, the snow, which we had just beautifully walked on top of in the morning when it was still frozen, had melted during the day, and we were post-holing down to our thighs. um, And so, again, really slowed down on the descent. Um, However, we did finally make it down to treeline, and I think we're all kind of patting each other on the backs and high-fiving when we got to treeline, but... Um, when we came out of the trees into the dreaded willows, that's when uh, things really started to fall apart. Yeah, yeah, many of the of the listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with the the infamous Mount Bierstadt willows. So even though we had climbed Mount Evans that day, we we still had to get back across the willows to get back to our car at Guanella Pass. And that storm that was supposed to come in the following day was in uh, full full on whiteout conditions at that point in time. Uh, couldn't see anything. Couldn't see the trailhead anymore. Uh, continued to to just snow on us, and the wind was howling. So we were we were cold. We were getting wet. And trying to find our way through the willows uh, as it was as it was starting to get dark. Uh, everything that we every little path that we thought we saw through the willows, uh, we would try and take one, and it would just lead us further into the swamp. And and uh, you know every, everything in the willows just leads to water. Um, yeah, so eventually uh, we saw something that looked like a clearing, so I went across, and the snow held me just fine. And Melissa uh, uh, was in the in the rear position. My dad, um, my dad went second and tried to cross after me, and and he tried to walk across that same same snowy clearing. And it turned out I had crossed the creek. And my dad had punched through, punched through the snowbank, uh, into the creek and was, was in water up to his waist. So oh. that was a, that, that was kind of a, a new problem for us. So after his dad fell in, I, I tried to crawl across the snow to get across, but ended up punching in too and going in up to, uh, about my knees in the creek. Um, but was able to pull myself out and his dad thankfully was able to pull himself out and, we all met up on the other side. Um, he was wet up to his waist. I was wet up to my knees. And we kind of realized we weren't going to get out that night. And we better find a place to hunker down to spend the night. Wow. Spent a, spent a long night outside. Um, once the hypothermia kicked in, well, we, at first we just needed to get Brad's dad out of his wet clothes to save his life. Um, Brad had a spare pair of dry long underwear in his pack. And I had a spare pair of dry socks in my pack. So... Got those on him and got him out of his wet 
pants and socks and boots. And then later in the night when the hypothermia kicked in and the judgment wasn't so good, we cut off my boots and socks because they were freezing also and uh, never ended up finding a really acceptable way to get my feet covered the rest of the night. So I ended up doing an overnight in 10 degrees barefoot. Um, thankfully, search and rescue came and got us the next morning because Brad's mom had lit reported us in as missing. Um, Flight for Life, Brad's dad and me off the mountain. And I got to uh, spend 10 days in the hospital after that. Oh, wow. All because of the dreaded willows, I'm going to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the willows. This was before Bierstadt had the boardwalk to help guide people through that. Yeah, I mean, the, the boardwalks, I think some of them were there. They were still buried under the snow because it was, you know, still mid-May and it had been a, a pretty decent snow year. Uh, so there were definitely no, no boardwalks visible. And, and this stretch... Uh, this stretch that we really got lost in is is the stretch in between the Mount Bierstadt Standard Trail and and the contour that you have to take off of that to get over to the Evans West Ridge route. So, so there's not there's a, a small trail that exists today. I've done that route uh, twice. I did it twice in 2016. So I'm intimately familiar with the route and still remember it very very well. Uh, but but with that much snow, uh, not. Not much of a trail and certainly no boardwalks in that area. And the visibility making matters all the worse. Uh, losing light, snow coming down. So this this went from a early season hike to something a whole lot bigger. Yeah, absolutely. You've written a book that details the experience called Exposed, Tragedy and Triumph in Mountain Climbing, like we mentioned at the beginning of the show. Where can people read more? Yeah, so you, you can get exposed uh, on on our website at exposedmountainbook.com. It's on Amazon. Uh, you can find it in a in a few retail retail locations like Tattered Cover. Um, you know, and, and the book tells tells that story, but it tells it tells a lot of our a lot of our recovery stories. You know, Melissa Melissa lost eight of her toes to to this frostbite, uh, and, and a lot of the book talks about you know life after the accident and uh, and just what that was like for us as a as a young married couple. What that was like for Melissa, uh, you know, to 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 go through three months of suffering and lose parts of uh, parts of her body, uh, and then and then. And her bouncing back and saying, you know, I want to go try and climb Mount Rainier. I want to climb Kilimanjaro and, and, and how you deal with how you deal with adversity in your life and, and kind of move forward when something bad happens to you. Well, Melissa, tell us about that. What was it like to bounce back? I mean, it had to be scary getting out of the hospital, having amputated eight toes. Um, how did you get going again with this stuff? Yeah, you know, in some ways, the mental recovery was almost harder than the physical recovery. You know, during the physical recovery, you've got something to focus on and your next objective, you know, um, getting through that, you're just sort of in a day-to-day -day mode and, <laughs> and you just worry about that day and you get through it and you worry about the next day. And so in some ways, as horrible as it was, that was the easy part. Um, the, the hard part was really the mental part of, you know, getting past the fear and the grief and, um, deciding if I was ever going to go out and hike again, um, you know, if our marriage was going to be okay, if I didn't go hike again, because as I said earlier, you know, hiking is, is a huge part of Brad's identity. And, uh, it was really when I was able to step back and realize that, you know, our marriage was going to be fine, even if I didn't hike and that I needed to just decide for myself whether I wanted to be outdoors or not, that I kind of came to the decision that, yeah, I, I do want to get out. And I really love being in the outdoors, although uh, I'm, I'm not doing these winter 14 or summits with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine that the skill set has improved, the equipment has improved, and uh, the alternative planning has improved. So even if you wanted to do the winter 14ers with him now, I'm sure it would be a completely different experience. You know, that's what he keeps telling me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's completely understandable to be a little bit hesitant. Most people don't want to do a winter 14er just because it's cold, period. It's not about the yeah. risk as much as just the cold itself. Yeah. No, I'm not a big fan of cold anymore. No, I, I wouldn't imagine so. So, Brad, what kind of a shelter were you guys able to put together? That must be really tough to do just <laughs> spur of the moment like that. 
Yeah, so, so really what we were able to find, we found a little clump of trees up on a small hill just above the willows, and that was about the best we could do just to try and try and get out of the wind a little bit and, and really find some higher ground and get out of the, out of the moisture in the swamp. So we, we just walked up the little hill to this clump of trees and thought, oh, that's about the best we're going to do tonight. Uh, we didn't try and build anything, really. We, we really just kind of hunkered down. Uh, the dog took the best spot by far, <laughs> uh, just laid down and, and went to sleep and started snoring all night. One of our favorite questions that we've gotten from, uh, you know, from audience members when we've done, uh, done book talks as well as over the years when, you know, when we've told the story is, is, well, why didn't you cut the dog open, uh, like a tauntaun and put oh. Melissa's feet inside the dog to keep them warm? You know, and the dog was our kid and I didn't have a lightsaber. So that it just wasn't a, <laughs> wasn't a great option. We probably could have and should have put Melissa's feet underneath the dog to keep them warm. Uh, although we were using the dog as a pillow, uh, which, which kept our faces and noses and ears, uh, more warm than they otherwise would have been. So, you know, with, with the frostbite, you don't make great, or excuse me, with the hypothermia, you don't make great decisions. Um, yeah, our, our little, little, little tree shelter was as good as we could do that night. Mm. If you're thinking about your future, think about Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. Think a beautiful mountain campus where hiking, biking, kayaking, and snow riding are right outside your door. Think a friendly community buzzing with music, arts, events, and sports. Think faculty mentors, real research, and professional experiences that prepare you to both make a living and make a life. If you think college should be an adventure, think Fort Lewis College. See for yourself at fortlewis.edu. Do you love mountains? You are not alone. Jerry Roach is well known for his extraordinary and detailed guidebook, Colorado 14ers. But did you know that Jerry has written 15 books, including guidebooks to 13ers, Indian Peaks, Rocky Mountain National Park, and more. But he's also written narratives about a lifetime of mountaineering full of Jerry's insights and humor. If you like adventure, then these books are for you. Jerry Roach's books can be purchased at his website, summitsite.com. That's S-U-M-M-I-T-S-I-G-H-T dot com, as well as on Amazon and in bookstores near you. I really want to highlight what you said. With the hypothermia, you don't always make the best decisions. I have seen hypothermia in action on hikes multiple times. And uh, I mentioned on the show a long time ago, there was once I had to grab one of my friends and shake him and force him to keep going because he decided he was just going to sit down. In the middle of a blizzard, in the middle of the night, he was just going to sit down. And I, when I said, why? He goes, oh, I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm just going to sit. Yeah. And it's a strange, strange thing, but I like to point that out because I think that uh, being aware of that can really help people. So it's a safety rule. Avoid hypothermia. And if you think you might have some hypothermia going on, realize you're a little bit mentally impaired at that point. Absolutely. Speaking of safety, what do you do differently now, Brad, to assure that you don't find yourself in a similar situation? You know, the, the biggest thing that I do now is I, I carry a GPS with me and I religiously mark mark my car as a waypoint on every hike. If, if I had had a GPS with me uh, the day of our accident and it had the car marked, uh, I could have at least told the GPS, take us in the direction of the car. And we might have gotten, you know, even more wet. We might have had to contour around a couple lakes or ponds or whatever in the willows. Uh, but we could have found the car that night and gotten out. Um, so that's that's a big thing that I do differently. Uh, you know, I think we also just go into the mountains with a much greater sense of respect uh, than than we did at that point in time. Uh, you know, p- people will say, well, what, what's an easy 14er to do? And, 
my response is, is there aren't any easy 14ers. There are easier 14ers, but you really need to, to go to the mountains with, with a healthy sense of respect and recognize that uh, lots of things can happen. Uh, I also carry a lot more stuff in my pack now. We really focus on making sure we always have the 10 essentials. Uh, we were missing a few of those the day of our, our accident, namely uh, fire starter, uh, shelter. Um, so just making sure that, that we have all those things. You know, I've gone on day hikes and had people pull me aside on the trail and, and ask me if I'm doing an overnight because my pack uh, is so much bigger than their pack. Right. Um, uh, so th- those are those are really kind of the big things that we do differently now. The, the day of the accident, we did, you know, one thing we did really, really well is we told somebody, my mother, where we were going, what trail, what mountain, uh, when to expect us back. And so when we weren't back, uh, she called the cavalry and, and search and rescue our, our angels uh, came to get us. So that's, you know, that's something, even though we did that well, I would certainly highlight that for, for the listeners. That, that it's just a, a key thing to make sure somebody knows where you're going to be and when you should be expected back. Mm. So can you list the 10 essentials off the top of your head? Yes. So there's the first aid kit. There is a map and compass or other navigational device. Uh, that's, that's the GPS that I carry now. Uh, pocket knife, which we had. We use that to, to cut Melissa's boot laces off. Uh, matches and fire starter. We had the matches that night, but not the fire starter. Uh, shelter, we didn't have with us. Uh, some sort of light, flashlight, headlamp. Uh, we had that. Uh, warm clothing, we had that. Food, we had that. Uh, water, we had that. Uh, sunglasses, sunscreen, that kind of stuff. That was not an issue for us. Um, and then Alpine Rescue Team, they've actually added a, an 11th, 11th essential, which is kind of a bonus one, which is a companion. And, uh, we, you know, we had that. And, and that's another thing that, that, uh, Search and Rescue told us that we did well was that we actually stayed together, uh, and, and didn't, you know, didn't split up when things were, were not going well, uh, cause things could have ended a little bit differently if, if we had, had separated. Yeah. The thing I'd add about the shelter is you don't need to carry like a full tent with you every time you go out for a hike. But, you know, I, every time I go out for any sort of a hike now at the bottom of my, I carry all of these things for any hike, but at the bottom of my pack is an emergency blanket that I could pull out and open up and get into if I needed to. So, mm, you know, in Jerry Roach's Colorado 14ers book, I believe there he mentions that he doesn't like to ever get separated from a sleeping bag. Do you carry a sleeping bag with you? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I knew right where you were going with that. He talks about, <laughs> you know, don't get separated from your sleeping bag and don't get separated from your lunch. Uh, we don't carry sleeping bags with us. Uh, we, we, you know, we do carry the emergency blankets, like Melissa was saying. Uh, depending on the climb, I'll occasionally throw in a bivy sack into my pack, um, sort of a sleeping bag liner. Um, but, but really it's, it's having something that you could get into and get out of, out of the elements. Uh, you know, I always have my Gore-Tex stuff with me now where I could, where I could stay dry as well. Uh, but not, not a full sleeping bag. Well, I'm with you. I generally don't carry a sleeping bag unless I plan to use it, but sometimes I wonder if I shouldn't. Yeah, you know, there's a long argument that people will have always had and I think will always have about, you know, fast and light versus heavy and slow. And I, I know we now definitely tend towards the more heavy and slow, but um, I'd say even if you're going fast and light, at a minimum, you need to have the smallest version of those 10 essentials. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a thermoblanket can go a long, long way. And a tarp, which weighs less than a pound, can uh, go a long, long way as well. There are all sorts of things that can be done with those simple items. And, you know, one thing I encourage all of our listeners to do is to study emergency shelters. Um, You can't always pull an emergency shelter together at the last minute. They take some planning, and you have to have some experience with the resources that are on hand, and they take a long time to build. So usually by the time you realize that you're in a bind, it might be too late. So I always encourage people, if you're going to try to to stay overnight in the wintertime, then uh, you probably should build a shelter before maybe even you attempt the rest of the way out. And I'm not sure if that always works out. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Melissa, how did this help you to grow as a person? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, we were it's probably a couple of years ago now. I was in the car with my kids, and they like to play a lot of what-if games. And 
you know, they were talking about superpowers and one of them said they wanted to be able to change things in the past. And the other said, I'd make mommy's accident never have happened. And I said, boy, I wouldn't because I'd be a different person now if if it hadn't happened. I, I definitely, you know, it's one of those things where most people never realize how strong they are until they have to find out how strong they are. And uh, I definitely, you know have learned a lot about my spirit and um, I guess how much of an optimist I am and uh, just sort of, it's nice to know I've got this inner strength that um, I know is there. You know, I know I have a faith in myself that I can get through things, get things done, you know, certainly puts a lot of other stuff in perspective. Right. Well, I tell you what, you guys, congratulations for persevering. And it sounds like that's a really tough story to uh, to survive, to go through an experience like that. I can't imagine it, um, but it can happen to anybody, no matter how experienced, uh, no matter, you know, at the time of the year, even in Colorado, we can be surprised by the weather, by route finding and those sorts of things. So I'm sure that you are helping countless people by sharing your story so that they can remember to take maybe that GPS and that shelter that you're talking about. Yeah, that's absolutely our, our intent when we wrote the book was to, to share the lessons learned uh, as well as just to kind of memorialize the story for our kids to have someday. But the other the other purpose of writing the book as well was to try and raise money for outdoor nonprofits. So we haven't we haven't talked about that yet, but we've actually donated all the money from the book uh, to outdoor nonprofits, including the search and rescue team that came to our aid, uh, Colorado 14ers Initiative, Volunteers for Outdoor Colorado, and Big City Mountaineers. So we, we haven't made a dime off the book, nor are we seeking to. It's it's really just all about uh, how can we how can we use that bad experience that we had to help others. Well, that's fantastic. I would not blame you for making all you could off the book, but I love it that you are contributing to these organizations. Let's talk briefly about these, if we could, just to help get the word out. Colorado 14ers Initiative, what is that about? Yeah, so CFI, as it's more widely known, really uh, works to protect and preserve the natural integrity of the of the 14ers. So CFI has has built and maintained an awful lot of the summit trails and seeks to make those accessible. Uh, recently, we've been in the press for uh, acquiring blocks of land on the on the sh- uh, the summit of Chavano to uh, to ensure legal access up there and to build a new sustainable trail. So that's uh, CFI in a nutshell. Nutshell kind of education, stewardship, and, and trail work. Very cool. What about the volunteers for Outdoor Colorado? Yeah, VOC is really all about engaging engaging uh, people in Colorado to get outside and steward our natural resources. Uh, so it's about putting shovels in people's hands and, and having them work on maintaining maintaining trails and just getting people outside to to appreciate uh, appreciate our, our beautiful backyard. You know, I oftentimes think about VOC kind of being the the, the lower elevation uh, equivalent of CFI. CFI kind of does the you know the above timberline stuff with our trails. Uh, VOC does a lot of stuff uh, you know, near the Front Range, uh, you know, in our, our Denver Mountain Parks, Golden Boulder, uh, all those places that are very easy to get to that have have incredibly high usage. Uh, VOC really works to works with the land managers to get people outside taking care of those lands. Oh, that's fantastic. And so, Melissa, what about Big City Mountaineers? Uh, Big City Mountaineers is a group that works with um, mentoring inner city high school mostly, but also middle school students in the outdoors. So their sort of flagship program that they started with is um, getting kids from inner city high schools out for a week in the backcountry with uh, one sort of a professional guide and several other adult volunteer guides. Um, and it's a, it's a really amazing transformative experience as having gone on the trips, I can say that you go certainly anticipating that you're going to be affecting someone else, but, you know, without a doubt, you end up walking away with a pretty deep experience as well. Um, and they've now added uh, middle school overnight programs too. Um, not the full week in the backcountry, but just overnight getting kids outside and getting kids who don't really have an opportunity otherwise to get out and experience nature in a different way and build an appreciation. Mm, That's really cool. I had the opportunity to take inner city kids into uh, the mountains 
on a few occasions. And to see that transformative experience happen, you know, just like you were talking about, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in that. I think sometimes, especially kids that haven't had much opportunity to get out, when they go to a place that's so big and awe-inspiring and they realize, I guess, just the value and the vastness and the power of nature, wow, what perspective that offers. Yeah, you know, being with a kid the first time they see a shooting star or all the stars at night or realize that they actually can carry that pack and keep walking and cook their own food. And um, the big one that every kid's always really anxious about going to the bathroom in the wilderness. But <laughs> once they realize they can get through those things, it's really neat to see the confidence it builds in, builds in them and just sort of you know, an appreciation for the just natural things that we have. Mm. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, you guys told me before we started the interview here that you're just the everyday people with jobs and kids, you know, the great American family, but you're doing a lot more because of your love for nature, because of the experiences that you've had. You're educating others, you're volunteering, you're plugging back in again and giving back to everyone. So we thank you for that, and thank you for being an example for us on how we can get out there and connect with nature and do more things. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us today. You know, it was uh, it was a real treat to have you guys on the show. And one more time, how can people find your book? So exposedmountainbook.com is our website. If anybody wants a, a signed copy, it's also on amazon.com. Um, and I think Tattered Cover uh, downtown and on Colfax still has some. Right on. And I have to mention, Brad, as, as we part here, that you have climbed seven fourteeners this winter since the 21st of December. Holy cow, man, you're, you're going. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm training for a Denali trip next June, so I knew I was going to be kind of kind of hitting things hard but I've been I've been benchmarking my progress a little bit there's a, a gentleman who's trying to climb all the peaks uh, all this winter uh, which has never been done before that anybody knows and, and so far he and I have both done both managed to get on top of seven this year so, so I'm feeling pretty good that not even going for the record so far I'm keeping pace with him <laughs> right on well maybe you guys should hook up and do it together that's great you know we actually talked about that last week and I told him where I was going to be and he he thought about it and wanted to save that mountain for a little later. Uh, but I, I imagine I'll get on top of a mountain with him sometime this winter. <laughs> That's fun. Well, thanks for the great example that you've provided for the rest of us. And once again, thanks for being on the program. Thank you, oh, Kurt. Thanks. And to all of our listeners out there, as always, get out there and have some fun. Thank you so much for listening today. Please do rate us and leave a comment on iTunes. Come to our site, leave a comment there. You can always contact us directly through our site at the Contact Us button. Thanks. Have a good day.